distinguished guests, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. As we embark, as we ride into year three of the DTP. And of course, I am your host here on the show, here on the Desert Tiger Podcast. My name is Colton G, and today on the show, we're joined as Robert Carley, as we talk about the awesome music project and their songs of hope and happiness. What exactly is that? Well, I'm going to be giving you a brief description coming up very, very soon. But before we go ahead and get there, there's a few things I want to go ahead and say first. So if you, like myself, are Canadian, the federal election is coming up soon, so you should probably get your ass out and vote. If you're like me, maybe you went out and hit the advanced polls, but either way, if you want a say in the future of Canada, once again, if you're a Canadian, get out there on October 21st, 2019 and do your thing. If you're one of our listeners who is not a Canadian, you can completely disregard that, but... You should probably know that today's episode was brought to you today by ilovedtp.com. Why is that? Because over at ilovedtp.com, that's where you, that's right, you, you beautiful soul, you, are going to go ahead and find yourself the latest and greatest in Desert Tiger Podcast swag so that you can rep the show every single place you go in front of your friends, in front of your family, and heck, even in front of your enemies. All right, fam. Music has incredible powers. Regardless of your taste, more than likely you have a collection of songs, bands, or genres that you have a deeper meaning or connection with. Whether they remind you of a moment in your past or help drive you through a challenge that's ahead of you in your future. Everyone seems to have an incredibly unique experience in their journey with music. This seems to transcend background, upbringing, culture, and status, and it even seems to connect those divided by those things. This incredible power is what drove Terry Stewart and Robert Carley to create the awesome music project's Songs of Hope and Happiness. What started with Terry's passion to know more about how music affects the people around him, the idea quickly morphed, and after showing his neighbor and local musician, Robert Carley, a few of these powerful stories, the duo began collecting, collaborating, and researching to gather and put these tales to print. 111 different Canadians of various lifestyles and backgrounds create a beautiful and incredible medley, sharing the life-changing powers of music and what it has done for them. Some of the Canadians whose stories are included inside of the awesome music project's Songs of Hope and Happiness happen to include the likes of Sarah McLaughlin, Rick Mercer, Theo Fleury, and astronaut Chris Hadfield. Not only does this book contain 111 incredibly moving stories about different people's experiences with music, it is also combined with statistics and facts about music's amazing powers on human beings and its ability to assist in the healing of our mental health. 
but it doesn't just end there as AMP is also dedicated to continuing to drive the research on the connections between music and mental health with proceeds from the novel sales going towards research in this area. Today, Robert Carley joins me on the Desert Tiger podcast to discuss the awesome music projects, Songs of Hope and Happiness, how he ended up becoming involved with the project, what it means to him, and just the incredible things that AMP is continuing to do with music and mental health. I am extremely excited to jump into today's episode of the podcast, so why don't we just go ahead and do that? So get ready to rumble through the jungle with the Desert Tiger Podcast and Robert Carley as we discuss the awesome music project and their book of songs of hope and happiness. The Desert Tiger Podcast. All right, today on the Desert Tiger Podcast, I am joined by Robert Carley, and today we're going to be speaking about AMP. AMP, of course, is the awesome music project, and they have just released a book entitled The Awesome Music Music Project, Songs of Hope and Happiness, and we're going to be speaking about that book today with Robert Carley. Thank you so much for joining the DTP today, Robert. Thanks, Colton, for having me on. Oh, I'm extremely excited to have you on the show today. This is a very deeply emotional, very moving, and a very, very insightful read. So I'm I'm very excited to dive into it today. Yeah, it can take you on uh, to a lot of places because it's, uh, as you know, it's a collection of stories. So it's really 111 stories. So you know, you can experience 111 songs or stories about songs or, you know, different voices and uh, different emotional places, really. It's um, it's quite rich that way. It's incredibly rich. Uh, definitely. It's moved me to tears a couple of times. But before we get into exactly the contents of the book, I want to know how you were brought into the project. You get into it a little bit into the introduction of the book, but Tell the listeners of the Desert Tiger podcast how you became involved with AMP. So Terry Stewart is a neighbor of mine, and it was uh, his brainchild, really. He was obsessed with trying to catalog music that made people happy. He basically would go around to people saying, hey, what's your happy song? And he would ask this question to to almost anyone he would meet. And his motivation for doing that, well, there was a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was he was he was trying to figure out how music can make people feel better. And he was specifically motivated by his own personal experiences and some friends and family who had undergone some uh, episodes and periods of depression and anxiety. And he knew that music had a sort of naturally therapeutic uh, quality about it, as I guess we all intrinsically do. We know that music can change the way we feel. But he was trying to quantify that and looking more at the science of it. And he thought by compiling a list of songs that made people happy, Maybe he could somehow create a formula um, that could then be applied to many other people. And I, I told him right away, I said, Terry, that's a, that's a ridiculous idea. Um, and, you know, my reasons, and I think most people would sort of understand this, is that music is highly subjective and that there's, you know, your, your happy song and my happy song are going to be two different things. But he collected a few stories and he showed me the stories and then I realized that it wasn't so much about 
um, the song itself. It was more about the narrative and the story behind the song because it really connects us as people when we understand or try to understand what it is that music means to other people and why a certain song resonates in a certain way or why it was important to them at a certain episode in their life. And so, you know, we start, I sort of got into this idea with him and I started to collect some stories and we accumulated a whole pile of them. And his, his like I say, his motivation was uh, highly personal, but then he also was trying to figure out the science behind it and that, that drove him to go down to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is here in Toronto. And it's one of the leading researchers in the world on this sort of research. Um, and so he teamed up with a, a group of three or four doctors and they, in fact, had a program that they were looking for funding for. It was a program that uh, was really a, a proposal uh, to look at more of the empirical data surrounding um, the science behind uh, music therapy and how it impacts the brain, specifically the brain chemistry, and trying to come up with more data that could then validate music therapy as, I guess, as a, you know, we all know it works, but I guess it's we're trying to legitimize it more and to understand uh, why it possibly isn't being prescribed more in in the medical system in Canada. There are other places where I think, like in the UK, for example, where they're a little further ahead of us on this kind of research, um, and just in terms of their policy from a government point of view, how you know how what what is prescribed when one is suffering from anxiety and depression uh, in those countries, uh, or in the United States, where the National Institute of Health has just released a report to fund $20 million worth of studies in this same field. And we were finding here in Canada, there's not much going on, and there's a program here waiting to be funded. So let's put these stories together, and let's raise some money uh, for CAMH. And in the process, we'll um, also, you know, remind people of the therapeutic nature of music. Wow. So what turned from a list of songs originally morphed into a stories of across a nation and you actually ended up teaming with Canadian Mental Health Association to find out more about music that's incredible yeah it it really just started as a you know chatting over the fence so to speak uh, with your neighbor and it turned into a book idea and then from then it really evolved into more than a book it evolved into a campaign uh, to raise funds and awareness for music and mental health research Wow. So what exactly is your background in music that he was able, that your neighbor was willing to approach you and ask you if you wanted to be involved with this project? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm a professional musician. And he looked to me as some sort of authority, uh, which is why when I first shut him down on the concept, he, I think he was a little bit um, disappointed. Um, my, my full-time job is really just... Um, well, I'm a musician. Most of my time I spend writing music and producing music for TV shows and films. I've been doing that for about 25 years. I'm also a performer, and I play with different groups and ensembles. Um, and I teach a bit, but I, you know, I spend most of my day creating or writing or performing music. And so he looked to me as, like, like I say, like an authority on, um, on the role of music uh, from a therapeutic point of view. And I was like, well don't think I know too much about that, but I wanted to find out more. And also, like I said, I was, I was curious about his, the idea of, you know, trying to collect these stories. And so then, um, you know, I should say that a lot of the, you know, a lot of the story contributors are musicians, but not, not, not the majority by any stretch. I think it's maybe 25 or 30% are, are people who 
um, are, who make music professionally or who are professional musicians or, or capable music, musicians, I suppose, whereas the rest are not. We have people who are from all different walks of life. And I thought that was very important um, just because sometimes when musicians speak about the role of music, it can be sort of a perceived bias that maybe, well, for them, music's different because they use it differently than the average person. And while I can assure people that's not the case, and that music really is, affects everyone, not the same, but everyone, the, the sort of magical, if you will, or transformative power of music applies to all people, regardless if you're a musician or not, the way when you hear a song. So I, I I'm trying to dispel that myth, but regardless, in the book, there's about 25 or 30% musicians and the rest aren't. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you had already had experience from working from with music and film and TV with how mood can affect a scene and how someone interprets it, and he just wanted to delve further into that realm. Yeah, I think so. I think he made an interesting connection there that I, I don't see that even occurred to him or even occurred to me is that, yes, indeed, with when you're scoring for you know picture for TV or film, there is a kind of an idea that yeah, you're using the music to heighten um, the emotional core of a film. And, you know, you could even, one could argue possibly you're using music to manipulate or using music to, to do something beyond just listen to it. It's functioning in a different way. And so, you know, I'm, I'm inherently tuned into, therefore, the, um, the power of the music to do something beyond just have an aesthetic quality. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting observation. I don't think I made that connection right away, and I don't think even Terry did. He just came to me because I, I knew a lot about music, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a funny kind of connection that, yes, indeed, my profession, uh, I'm possibly just maybe more aware of the role of music in how emotionally it impacts people. Hmm. It's interesting how over a fence conversation can just end up having that extra level of connection. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen. So next time you talk to your neighbor over your fence, just be careful. It might lead to something. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely might. And something that you mentioned that I am actually really inspired by in this book is that that it isn't just a large portion of musicians. And one of the first stories that the book starts off with is a very well-known musician in Sarah McLaughlin. But you also have a lot of different people of different backgrounds, different career paths, of different, like, experiences, ethnicity, ethnic, ah, I'm totally dropping the word there, ethnicity. Ethnicity. I know know where you're going with that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you're definitely not only getting a map of just across Canada, you're also getting an experience of different people who come from different worlds. Uh, yeah, we were trying to be as diverse as possible with the book. Um, this is a big country. And so, yeah, you're right. We tried to represent geography with every province and territory represented in the book. Uh, we tried to represent demographic in terms of age. Like, I, mean, I think the youngest contributor is eight, and the oldest just turned 100, uh, which is pretty awesome. And then, um, you know, in, yeah, you, you mentioned ethnicity, uh, background in terms of work background, status in terms of like some people are very famous in the book and some people are not very famous at all um you know gender we try to really represent the diversity of the nation you know we have indigenous people in the book we have um lgbtq in the book so everyone is kind of represented we're not everyone but we're hoping that we try our best and we hope that um you know you can look at someone in the book or find a story where you can maybe relate to it a little bit 
Mm-hmm. And even if it's something that maybe you didn't experience just through their connection to music and their story to the music, you can end up seeing that song through an entirely different light. And that ends up helping you understand that person so much better. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when you, if you told me your, your, um, you know, your, your song from your story was something that really turned me off, like something, I don't know, wind beneath my wings. I may, I may not like that song. Or maybe I used to, but I don't anymore, let's pretend. And I heard that song, or you told me that, and I'd be like, oh, not interested in your story. But then I read your story, and then I understand why the song is so important to you, and it's obviously got something really important to you. It changes the whole conversation. It changes the lens at which I look through that song. And when I hear that song, it it really changes the way I perceive it, and I perceive, you know, what your your journey was. And so, you know, to put that in that into that concept into practice, what we did was we did a couple of events, actually. And, you know, I wasn't sure if it would work or not. So on Thursday, as you mentioned, our book just came out. Thursday was World Mental Health Day, the last Thursday, October 10th. And we did a few events, and we, we like I say, we put the, the concept uh, to the test where we have storytellers read their stories and then singer-songwriters sing those songs, and then neuroscientists come out and discuss what's happening. So kind of an evening of of stories, songs, and science. And you'd be amazed when you hear the story behind a song and then you hear that song played possibly in a different way than the original recording because it's impossible to do that. The impact that had on the on the room, um, well, I, I suspected it would have, you know, it has an emotional impact when you hear it, when you read it in stories, as you mentioned, you were crying a bit when you read the book. But when you hear it live, it's almost another whole other dimension. And that really... Um, I think was what we experienced in our live event where people were just, you know, people were moved to tears and you know, it was a very heartwarming experience uh, listening to some of the stories and then hearing uh, performers play those songs and then having a, a neuroscientist come out to talk a little bit about what's happening. That's really an incredible event, especially from a live music standpoint and something that I don't know if it's ever really been done before. Well, it's certainly, I mean, obviously concerts have been done and stories uh, in concerts. When you do it with the science piece and you do it for the motivation of raising money for mental health uh, research and awareness, I think that's possibly something a little different. And that's why we're really doing it. And, you know, our event on Thursday featured some beautiful stories. We had a story from a guy named Shakur Gotti. He was a Canadian Armed Forces lieutenant in Haiti in 2010 during the earthquake, he was buried alive. And he had used music almost to keep him alive uh, in the song Lovers in a Dangerous Time by Bruce Colburn. But specifically, he cited the Naked Ladies version of that song, which is well known. And he used that song in particular, particularly the line, kicking at the darkness to the bleeds daylight. Like he literally was, was doing that to try to escape. You know, being entombed in rubble after the earthquake, and then uh, Ed and Jim, Ed Robertson and Jim Cregan from the Bernicke Ladies came out, took the stage, and sang "Lovers in a Dangerous Time," and it was such an uplifting experience. And we did that three or four times uh, in a row with different singer-songwriters and storytellers, and it just is like a really emotionally charged kind of event, and you know, it, it works, I think. And it's really incredible that the musicians are getting behind that too and willing to involve themselves in that aspect of mental health as well. And 
it also maybe helps show them because for them like they originally did this song as a cover and they have their own reasons for why it's important to themselves but now it means an entirely different reason because they have seen what it means from someone else expressing that emotion live and then probably seeing the joy on that person's face after they performed the song yeah i do think there was um it's it's an uh, interesting perspective for the creators or the musicians as well to to hear what their song means to somebody else um in fact there's a well ed was the singer and he he mentioned that and in fact on the back of the book if you have it in front of you i don't have one right in front of me but the back of the book there's a nice quote from ed do you have a book handy there colton I do have an electric copy available. Oh, okay. So on the very back cover, I'll go find one. It's, yeah, well, maybe I can remember what he says. He says, uh, Ed Robertson from the Bernicke Lady says, I have spent my entire life dedicated to recording and creating music, and it still fascinates me what it means to people. I think that's what he said as a sort of quote, and then he said, this is a great read or something like that. Like he was endorsing the book, but in doing so, he was mentioning that he's, he, you know, even though he's, been doing it all his life, he's still fascinated by what music means to people. And I think that's, you know, the essence of this, the book is that, you know, we all know music, we all know music changes the way we feel, but hearing stories about it from other people, and particularly stories about loss and recovery and stories that have had a sort of pivotal impact on someone's life, like a decision to go away or travel, uh, you know, life-altering events that have somehow um, story story about a song involved those are really interesting stories to read so mm-hmm. it's it's really is incredible so i'm curious as to you said that once you were shown some of the stories that you began to realize just what was possible with this collection of tales so how far along was this collection once you joined, and where was the project at? Did you guys know that you wanted to make it into a book at that point? What was what was the goal? Well, Terry, yeah, I think the goal was immediately a book for him, but a book about stories. It was, you know, what what is the shape and the form of that? So we didn't know. Could it be like ten stories and then a lot of um, research and science? We didn't know how it was going to spin out, and I only read a couple of his stories. He had. Well, actually, I haven't even read. One was just his own story. And then he had mentioned a couple of stories talking to cab drivers um, and how the surprising stories they were having. It was it was just, I found it curious, you know, what people would choose. Um, and then I suddenly was like, well, these are, these are unexpected stories and unexpected songs from people from all over the place. So I think we can dig a bit deeper and find out some more. That's how it all started. And yeah, I mean, at the, at the very beginning, it's like any kind of creative thing, I suppose. You don't really know what the shape it's going to be. It, it changes so rapidly. I won't say rapidly, but it it goes undergoes significant change throughout the process that it's often um, a, a distorted version of itself once it's done. You know? mm-hmm. so. Definitely. It, it's funny how things can evolve from what we once thought they could be and how big they actually can end up becoming, especially with working with the Canadian Mental Health Association and having like events like the one you mentioned earlier. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you know, in the case of the book, I mean, when you say I'm making a book about stories, about music, it's very hard to visualize that. And, you know, I got to, we have to credit 
page two, our publisher and their amazing team, including their um, editor, writer, Scott Steedman, who compiled a lot of, well, most of the stories. He helped collect, capture them from our contributors. And also um, we had Peter Cocking, who, you know, at first was trying to figure out how do you make this book visually interesting? And if someone has a song about The Clash or a story about The Clash, you think, oh, let's just use like the cover of London Calling, uh, which you can't do. So he would instead make album covers inspired by Blue Note record covers. And I, we thought that was a very fitting kind of direction because the idea of nostalgia and the idea of stories and how music is like a time machine fits into that nostalgic um, kind of aesthetic. And we thought, you know, using the old-fashioned Blue Note record cover as a kind of uh, inspiration was a great point of departure. And he went off and, as you can see in the book, made 111 uh, album covers to, to pair with each story. So that was quite a, a really a huge undertaking. And, you know, hats off to him for doing such a stellar job. Mm -hmm. And some of it is extremely powerful connection as well, because it sort of gives you a little bit of a visual look into things and it helps bring a little bit more vividness to the read as well. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's fun to read the book because it's not, you know, like I said earlier, it's kind of episodic. You don't sit down and read 111 stories. You read one or two, and, you know, they may be short or they might be very involved stories. Some of them are very heavy, as you indicated earlier, and some of them aren't. And so you read one or two, and then you go on to your day, and maybe later on, you're after, you know, at the end of the evening, you might just read a couple more. It's, it's that kind of book where you, it's a coffee table book, in essence, and you don't need to sit down and read it all at once. Mm -hmm. And it's also broken up episodically in four different sections where it's broken down into music and voice, music and recovery, music and experience, and music and community, which it also helps just give show just the different ways that it stretches out as well. Yeah, the, um, our, our publisher actually was, was their idea. That's, uh, like I guess, at page two, they are headed up by... Uh, Jesse and Trina, Trina White and uh, Jesse Finkelstein in Vancouver, they, you know, oversaw the sort of the editorial part of the book and, you know, and with Scott dividing it up into chapters like that, I think was a good idea because each chapter, we had a number of science articles we wanted to include. We had another, uh, a number of fact bubbles. And so those are all organized through the chapters while you, at the end of each chapter, you have a little bit of science. Um, and the stories are kind of grouped in a way which is sort of related. So if you're reading like the loss chapter, which I think is chapter two, it's quite there's a lot of heavier stories um, in that chapter. And then you read uh, other chapters, and it's not you know just, the groupings are slightly different. Mm -hmm, definitely, like the first one is definitely a lot of music and voice, where lyrics help you find your inner spirit and your inner like want to show who you are to the world and how songs have helped empowered people and like you said chapter two is how it's helped people recover from loss or difficult experiences and just really down times and from there just how music has brought people together and everything else and it's just really beautiful well thanks it really, really is beautiful, just like I'm sure that all of you, the listeners of the Desert Tiger podcast, have your own incredibly beautiful, moving stories 
about those songs that are incredibly important to you, and I would love to hear those. I would love if you reached out and tagged us in a social media post where you spoke about your own story, or even if you just wanted to go ahead and send us a message like a DM on Instagram or on Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is, you can even go ahead and email us at desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com. And I want to hear your guys' story. I want to know more about the listeners of the Desert Tiger Podcast, and I feel like this is a great way to do so. So like I said, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Desert Tiger Entertainment or Desert Tiger Podcast, or like I said, you can also email us your stories at desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com. And I am incredibly excited to hear more about your stories and more about you. I also want to go ahead and take a quick moment to remind you that today's episode of the DTP is brought to you by ILoveDTP.com. Why is that? That's because over at ILoveDTP.com, not only is it the place where you're going to go ahead and get yourself the latest and greatest in Desert Tiger Podcast swag so that you can rep the show every single place you go in front of your friends, in front of your family, and even in front of your enemies with a nice big old loud DTP roar. It's also the best way that you can support the show because all the proceeds from that go to continuing to help grow the show, whether that is with assisting us in improving our equipment, getting out to do more interviews, or just whatever it happens to be that this goes towards. In fact, with this week's sales of t-shirts over on at ilovedtp.com, there's going to be a nice little donation made on over to the awesome music project so that you guys can feel that little extra bit of good when you're repping the show. And of course, if you want to go ahead and make bigger donations to the awesome music projects, Robert Carley is going to go ahead and tell you how to do that later on in today's episode. But of course, we need to get there. So why don't we go ahead and jump right back in to today's episode of the DTP featuring my guest, Robert Carley. The Desert Tiger Podcast. So one thing that I also really incredibly enjoy with this book is the how you bring it in with the mental health aspect and the the stats that you have listed throughout the book as well and that just continues to show the connection to the Canadian Mental Health Association. So did a lot of those stats come from the Canadian Mental Health Association and exactly what did they bring to the campaign? Well, it's it, there's different. Um, the stats are compiled from different sources. Uh, so we worked with a number of music therapists and a, a number of um, neuroscientists. Uh, we pulled different people to contribute to the book. So Laurel Trainer is a um, one of the contributors, and she runs the. Um, well, she's a she's a what is she? I guess she's a neuroscientist, uh, but she runs the Live Lab down at McMaster. Uh, she's also a flautist, but she's uh, she um, you know she contributed um, her own uh, essay on music therapy and what they're doing down in Hamilton. And then we had one uh, Michael Tout, uh, Tout, pardon me, and Corinne Tout uh, contributed um, a, a longer article about the neuro the neuro sort of neuroscience side of music therapy. Um, 
just a number of different articles like that. We have a guy named Gabe Nespoli who, who talks a bit about um, movement and why you want to move or tap your toe when you hear music. So these are these are just kind of like general interest. They're written in a very familiar style, but they're really talking about the science more than we're talking about personal experience or music. They're not talking, those are not personal stories. They're all sort of, um, I want to say they're research articles, but they're not done in, a, in a over, you know, an overly academic kind of way. They're done in a very familiar style. And the very last, the, the very, sorry, I should mention the very last science piece in the book is a contribution from Jeff Meyer. Um, and Jeff Meyer is the lead scientist at the CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Um, he, he's the lead scientist at the uh, uh, research project that we're funding. Oh, wow. So he, he goes into that a little bit in detail about um, the proteins and how the, those are the, there are certain proteins in your brain, in your, in your blood, in your body that um, are, are heightened and they've noticed that they're heightened in uh, victims uh, or those suffering from anxiety and depression. And so they wanted to try to measure those and see what, you know, one, two or three months of protocol-based music therapy exposure had, what kind of impact that would have on those levels. So that would be one way of measuring um, from a chemical point of view the changes in the brain chemistry after exposure to music therapy. Another way is through synaptic density. So they're looking at um, how your brain changes over time. And, you know, this is a study that doesn't take a few weeks. It takes a long, long time to do. In fact, uh, they're just now in the process of getting their funding now that we're starting to fund it and now looking for the right candidates. Uh, and they need like 40 or 50 different candidates called from a large pool of people that are, you know, uh, eligible. So it's it's a bit of a lengthy process, but I think uh, we're really excited about being involved with it and we'll see what happens. Wow. So just continuing to push forward and even driving more research from this and moving forward. Well, yeah. I mean, to us, the research is the most important part of it all because that's why we're doing this, is to try to actually raise money for research to make a change. So to do that, you need to have the science. And so that's you know, it's you know when you when you give to a campaign, it's always really important to understand where your money's going. Um, so we want to make sure that everyone understands that this isn't just we're not just going into doing a PR campaign about music and mental health. We are actually trying to fund a very specific program, uh, which we haven't come up with a good name yet. I keep putting pressure on Jeff Meyer to come up with a clever name for the <laughs> for the project, um, but right now it it doesn't have a catchy title but it's a it's a project that he's spearheading with four other doctors that looks at the connections between music and mental health and music therapy and on the chemistry of the brain wow. he'll come up with an essay title which will be probably uh 25 words long and then we'll have to get it down from that <laughs> <laughs> come up with some sort of acronym or something from from there mm-hmm. maybe that's it yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. So we've gone through a lot of the stories inside of the book and how you became involved with the book and what it has allowed you to do afterwards. But I want to dive a little bit into your personal connection with music because I read your part of the introduction. I'm not sure if you actually dive into your experiences otherwise inside of this book. So do you have a song that you connect with or a genre or something else that you really have a powerful story with or through your experiences with this journey 
looking back, do you see a song that maybe you didn't don't realize had that effect on you now? Well, I, I, I think the answer to your question is more the first part. Um, we all have a music story, and I have a music story. I have many music stories, actually, and uh, I have lots of memories of different music. And in fact, I had... I had articulated one into a story, uh, which we then cut. We cut out our stories. Terry and I both had stories contributed, but we had so many stories, and we wanted to, you know, we wanted to bring them in the book, and so we we needed to, for space considerations, we had to, we had to cut a few, and we cut we cut ours, um, and maybe we'll make them into the second book. But the, my story had to deal with um, discovering someone through their record collection, discovering who they are. So in this case, I was talking about my wife, who is a violinist in the Toronto Symphony. When I first met her, her, I was, I was trained as a classical musician, as, as was she, but I had a totally different, not totally different, but a rather different um, record collection. And I didn't know as much chamber music as she knew. Being a violinist, she played tons of chamber music. And so, you know, off she would go to work and I would like sort of... Um, uh, rifle through her her CD collection, looking at all this new music, which wasn't new necessarily, but new to me, uh, and discovering a lot of um, piano trios and string quartets and things that I wasn't really that familiar with. And so, music to me became a way when you you know when you're falling in love with someone, you fall in love with their record collection, and that was my story. And so I had a, a specific piece of music, um, a Schubert trio that I had, uh, still to this day, is is really moving. Anyway, that was the nature of my story. But I have so many stories like that and, and you know, recollections. And I think what one of the things, to answer your second part of your question, like maybe through, this, through the journey on the book, I think so many people um, in this book have talked about, uh, you know, an earlier time in their life, oftentimes uh, their teenage years or their adolescence and discovering some kind of band or song or even genre of music which became... Um, helped them to shape their identity, and I remember. And many people talked about the idea of like looking through albums, looking through lyrics, and I remember doing that myself. And uh, it never really occurred to me how indelible that image is. I mean, the idea of sitting on the living room floor of my parents' house, listening to something like Queen, The Game, you know, and listening to or reading rather the the lyrics as the song is going by. Um, that was kind of my first experience ever doing that, like really putting together the connection that songs that you hear on the radio or songs you just hear anywhere have lyrics, of course, and when you write them out, they look like poems. And, you know, it's almost like you could say that poems are really just, um, they're really songs waiting to be set to music. <laughs> and that's kind of what I started to believe and started to think in term, those terms because I hadn't really read much poetry. Um, you know, when I was a 15 year old kid, but I had listened to a lot of music and I had then started to read the lyrics in a different way. And I have really fond memories, things that, th memories that I'll never lose actually, of just listening to music and, and reading the music. Uh, so that's, a, you know, that's one of the things I kind of um, was reminded on this journey. Wow. Well, that's awesome that that allowed you to look back and remember those moments with such fondness. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's kind of a, one of the beauties of the book, I think, is that it does make every person sort of reflect on their own music story and reflect on what songs make them or, or make part of their soundtrack. You know, everyone's kind of got a soundtrack in their life, and finding those things out is it's a great part of the process. 
I definitely agree. You actually um, hinted that you might add your stories to a second book. Is a second book something that you guys have already started working on? I haven't started just yet. We're still getting the person out the door, and we have a few <laughs> events coming up. But, you know, we've already thought about the idea. I mean, as we collected more stories and we got more and more people enthusiastic about the idea, you, you know, there are there are all kinds of stories out there, and we could, we could do collections that are thematically unified. So, for example, you could do a sports edition only, or you could do a youth edition, some other idea. And I think you could, that, you know, the actor's edition. I mean, these are all or the Corporate Titans edition. These are all possibilities. So uh, it's just a matter of time, and uh, ensuring that we raise the right amount of money uh, on the first book will sort of lead us to more more down the road. All right, fantastic. Well, if any of the listeners of the podcast wanted to continue to assist with the raising of the money, how can they go forward with doing so, or how could they find the book for themselves? Great question. So you should go to theawesomemusicproject.com. And the first thing you should do is you should follow us along on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook. So you, you following us on social media is a great help to us because it helps to build the community, which is one of the goals of this campaign. The second thing you can do is once you're on the website, you can either go to buy, which is where you can buy T-shirts and hats and merchandise and also the book itself, or you have links there to go to. It might be more convenient depending on where you live to visit your local bookstore or to just go to Amazon or Indigo and, and order the, the books online. That's a great way to do it as well. If you want to give to the campaign, which is really appreciated, you can go to the donate button. And once you're at the donate button, you'll have three, uh, well, you'll have a number of choices. You can donate directly to our campaign or you can do, donate to one of our partners. So in, it, we, we partner with different charities and different communities. Um, and in addition to CAMH, which is our sort of lead benefactor. So to keep it simple, possibly you just donate to them. That's the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and that's the project that we're funding about the research. Um, we are currently doing a project right now with um, Grand River Hospital in Waterloo Region and helping to fund their music therapy program. So depending on when you go to the page and when the podcast is on, um, there's going to be different choices as to who you want to drive your money toward. Fantastic. So I should recap. Just go to theawesomemusicproject.com and you can navigate there from there to, well, first of all, it's social media, but also you can navigate to either the buy page to buy books or hats and merchandise, or you can go to the donate page where you can uh, drive your money to one of our uh, benefactors. Fantastic, fantastic. And I feel that this is a very important lesson or important cause and I'm sure that a lot of the listeners of the podcast will as well. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for that, Colton. I think it's really, it's something that's changed, you know, in the last few years. I think it's more part of the conversation. Uh, one could even argue that mental illness and mental health, indeed, it's part of the conversation, but it's also something that's, I don't know with it, what it is, if it's with technology or the nature of our lives or the social media, for whatever reason, I think, more people are suffering. If you look at incidents, if you look at the statistics, um, levels are rising. Um, it's more of a, a concern uh, to me and to, I think, many people now than it was uh, decades ago. And I think we have to we have to address it. So that's why we're doing this. 
I definitely feel that we have to address it as well and we need to use those tools like technology to destroy the stigma and allow communication to flow freely. Absolutely, yeah. All right, I completely agree and I am so very thankful that you took the time to join me today, Robert. Thanks, Colton, for having me on the show. I am absolutely ecstatic that you could take the time to join me. It was an absolute pleasure. All right, talk to you soon. And with that, we come near the end of another incredible, exciting, enthralling episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. But have no fear because we are going to be back next week, as we always are. And I'm going to be giving you a little bit of an idea of who may be popping up next week on the Desert Tiger Podcast very soon. But before we do that, I want to go ahead and give... One last big old DTP thank you to Robert Carley of the Awesome Music Project for joining me here on the show. And like you've heard me say numerous times through this episode, this book is an incredible read. And I am not lying when I said I was moved to tears numerous times while reading the stories that are contained inside of this book. It is an incredible read, and I highly suggest you head on over to awesomemusicproject.com in order to find out more about this wonderful book and the incredible things that AMP is continuing to do with the connections between music and mental health. I also want to go ahead and take a moment to thank Eric Alper for going and setting up this episode. You guys know the man EA helps us out a whole lot, and we got mad love, mad respect for Eric. So thank you so much, EA. You know what it is. And of course, it wouldn't be Desert Tiger without you guys, the listeners of the show, for tuning in to these episodes, for sharing them on your social media, for subscribing to the show if you're a new listener, hint, hint, and for leaving those five-star reviews over on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher because those help our shows chart. It helps us reach a new audience. It helps us bring in bigger and better guests. And baby, that's all we want to do over here at Desert Tiger. You guys know that we've been growing up into a nice, big old meaty tiger on over here in these last three years. And we just continue to keep on feeding. Yes, yes, we do it best. Mm. So thank you for tuning into today's episode of the show. If you want to head on over to ilovedtp.com to give that little bit of extra support, you know I will love you with all of my heart for doing so. All right, next week on the show, we are joined by Cone of Sum 40 freaking 1. That's right, you guys. Sum 41 is going to be joining the show, and I am so excited. So excited, I don't even know what to say. So I will just see you next week right here on the Desert Tiger Podcast. Yeah.